0: Direct your attention this morning to the second chapter of Matthew and the account of the journey of the Magi to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem, there where they met and worshipped the newborn King. Matthew chapter two. We're reading verses one to twelve only, and not um, and not the aftermath of that visit and Herod's effort to. Destroy the baby still there in Bethlehem. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Herod is thought to have died in 4 B.C. There is some discussion about that still in scholarly circles, but uh, the consensus is that he died in 4 B.C., you remember that the date of the Lord's birth was not calculated for the sake of the calendar until centuries later. In fact, it was not until A.D. 533 that Dionysius Exiguus sounds quite um, impressive, except in translation it means Dennis the Short, um, (laughs) proposed to reckon years no longer from the founding of Rome, but uh, from the birth of Christ. So it's not perhaps... So surprising that 500 years afterward, he should calculate um, the birth of Christ and get it wrong by a little bit. Magi is a term designating astrologers or magicians who were very numerous in the countries of Western Asia at this time, which would have been the east to um, those living in Jerusalem. Uh, We have a reference to another magos or magos in Acts 13.6, whom Paul and Barnabas encountered on their first missionary journey in Cyprus. Simon Megos, Simon the magician, whom we meet in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria, was such a magician. That is not a man who does tricks, but a man who reads the stars, interprets dreams, has skill in other secret arts. The Bible, of course, doesn't have any time for this, often scorns it as a lot of baloney, but uh, such is what these men were, and perhaps they had some official standing as um, members of court, as was often the case. These men were uh, royal advisors uh, and the like. So they came from the east of Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the reference to the star has been a matter of intense interest almost since the event itself. Attempts to identify this star in terms of some known astronomical phenomenon also go way back into the Roman world um, and usually reduce to one form or another of one of three alternatives. Either a conjunction of two planets, for example, that of Saturn and Jupiter, which is known to have occurred in 7 BC, or a comet, usually Halley's Comet, which for this purpose unfortunately uh, came too early. Uh, in the year 1211 B.C., uh, or a nova, a star that, because of an explosion, temporarily burns uh, very brightly. For example, in an article in the Quarterly Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1977, three astronomers identified the Magi's star as a nova, which we know Chinese astronomers to have observed for 70 days during the year 5.4 B.C., these explanations, though perhaps uh, a part of the story, would not account for what the Magi took to be the moving of the star, and we'll read about that in verse 8. Ma- Matthew obviously understands super, something supernatural to be at work, however much natural phenomena may have played a part. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was paranoid. By this time in his life, he'd already killed two of his own sons, whom he feared had designs on his throne. He was a cruel man. Augustus, who grew up with him in the Roman court in Rome, is reported to have said that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's boy. But being an Edomite, not a Jew, and being a Roman appointee, he did have something to fear from a royal pretender who had some legitimate claim to Davidic succession, and of course that's what is suggested by king of the Jews. All Jerusalem was concerned, perhaps largely because the people may very well have feared what Herod's reaction would be to news like this, but Matthew may also be preparing us for the hostility Uh, to Jesus that would be demonstrated by the Jews later in the gospel, and especially by the authorities in Jerusalem. Already they were unprepared for any king, unwelcoming of any king who did not meet their expectations. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born, the Messiah was to be born, for that's what Christ means. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. And then he goes back to Micah chapter (laughs) 5, verse 2, which we considered last Lord's Day evening. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Matthew cites Micah 5, 2 very freely. He's really interpreting the verse more than he is quoting it. And he also conflates the second half of the verse with language which he takes from 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 2 about David being the shepherd of God's people. When Herod called the Magi, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod's dark and completely hypocritical request, he intended, of course, to kill the child, not to worship him, would be understood by the locals, but would not have been understood by these foreigners. Bishop Hall, the 17th century Anglican, writes in his contemplations, his reflections on the history of the Bible, there is no villainy so great, but it will mask itself under a show of piety. And uh, if there's anything we have seen proved over and over again, it is that in the 20th century. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. We don't know how that happened. But like Israel in the wilderness, God led them by light, because God is light. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. The term child is used instead of infant or baby, but in Luke chapter two verse twenty seven, you have the same word used of Jesus in his uh, when he was only forty days old. So, though um, uh, when the uh, Magi get to Bethlehem, Jesus is no longer a newborn. He still was probably quite uh, young. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, and of incense, and of myrrh—gifts fit for a king. We remember Queen of Sheba giving just these very gifts to. King Solomon, when she came to visit him. And in the prophetic passages of the Old Testament, we read of the nations of the earth bringing just these very gifts to lay at the feet of the coming Messiah. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The the Magi followed some instruction from the Lord at the beginning, because uh, while there definitely was a star... The star by itself would not have told them that it was the king of the Jews who had been born and whom they were seeking. And now they follow the instructions again to the letter, warned in a dream they go back in a different way, no matter that Herod had made this request of them. Now just a word about the historicity of this account. Many modern folk, as you know, and of course a great many biblical scholars also, people who study the Bible but have no true faith. In its message or divine origin, just like these biblical scholars in Jerusalem had no faith in the text that they themselves gave to the Magi to direct them to Bethlehem, many people argue that this is a myth, a pious legend, uh, taught for different reasons, for different purposes, maybe chiefly to show that Jesus from the very beginning was going to be the Savior of the world, of Gentiles as well as of Jews. But as a matter of fact, apart from the star, there's nothing in the history that's improbable at all. Suetonius and Dio Cassius tell us of a comparable visit of Eastern Magi to Nero in AD 66, and it was scarcely a story that the church would invent, given its antipathy to magicians and astrologers. If you were making up the story, it's very unlikely that you would make the heroes people whose life's work was something you repudiated with all your heart. It also fits history's account of King Herod uh, to the T. We know what Herod was like, and he was exactly like uh, his presentation in this passage. Of course, our confidence in the historicity of this passage, with a miracle in it as it has, is based primarily on the authority and reliability of the Gospel of Matthew and the New Testament as a whole. And we have many reasons to put and place our confidence in the truthfulness of God's Word quite apart from the fact that the Holy Spirit himself persuades his people to do so when he speaks out of that word with an authority the soul cannot deny. Now, our Father, teach us from this history, for history it is, these remarkable events that occurred, and these men who are at the center of these events, make us by thy grace like them, for surely here they are portrayed as exemplars of that faith and that obedience that God approves. Hear an answer we ask, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. wonder how many sermons have been preached throughout the ages on the various responses to Christ, the announcement of the birth of the Messiah, that are illustrated in this history of the Magi. I've been reading over the past several weeks a collection of Advent sermons by Lancelot Andrews, the saintly Anglican bishop, one of the translators of the King James Bible in the early 17th century, and the author of the celebrated private devotions, which some of you have found so helpful in past years. The volume I've been reading, a gift from Mr. Hanula, who got it on Covenant High School's recent trip to Great Britain, contains 17 sermons, each of which was preached on Christmas Day in the years from 1605 to 1624, there are a few years missing, preached to the royal court and in the presence of King James I. James, if you recall, had been raised in theologically sophisticated Scotland of the Reformation era by Presbyterian uh, tutors. He fancied himself as something of a theologian. These sermons, I fear, would disappoint you. They may have pleased James for all we know, but they wouldn't please any congregation I know anything about today. They are very dry and very dull, and they are full of extraordinarily lengthy argument, lots of Latin and Greek sprinkled throughout. Still, I found that Andrews, who was undoubtedly a wise and godly and very devout man, and a most careful student of the Bible, has many good things to say, and in any case, In his sermon on Matthew 2, and the visit of the Magi, Andrews takes exactly the same tact that countless preachers had taken before him and would take after him. He sees the Magi as an example of how everybody ought to respond to the news that the King of the Jews had been born. The theologians, knowledgeable as they were, couldn't be bothered to take the half-hour trip that it takes to get to Bethlehem on a donkey, three miles south of the capital, to see if there might be some truth in the extraordinary claim that these extraordinary men were making. And frankly, that's the case with most people. Most of the people you rub shoulders with day in and day out, they never really give much serious thought to the deepest questions and issues of life. Here is the extraordinary claim that a Savior has come into the world with all the glory and power of God, but now with the shared life and experience of a man that he can save men and women from their sins, he and no one else. That trust in him and following him will bring men and women back to God and eventually bring them to heaven and everlasting life. I say that's the extraordinary message and claim. Perhaps it is, in some ways, difficult to believe it. It's also supernatural. Still, such staggering things are claimed to have happened, claimed to have happened by the most reputable people, whose lives, whose characters we can see shining through their writings. Could this really be true? Can we believe it? here in this scientific age at the end of the 20th century. Well, a great many highly sophisticated and educated people don't believe it. But a great many sophisticated and highly educated people do believe it and are as sure that the Magi came to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem and saw the baby Jesus following the star and knew what they were talking about when they spoke of the birth of the King of the Jews as they are sure of their own existence. Why do they believe this? How can they believe this? How can they be so sure? These seem to be such obvious questions and important questions. After all, nothing less is at stake than one's eternal life. But most people can't be bothered. And alas, they will go to their graves refusing to give any serious concentrated thought to the extraordinary claims that Christianity makes in its presentation of the gospel to the world. They can't be bothered with the Savior. They have apparently bigger fish to fry. Just like the theologians in Jerusalem, apparently there was something more important for them to do in the capital than to take that half hour and travel to Bethlehem and check out this remarkable report that they had received. But then there are others, just like Herod, whose rebellion against God and God's rule and God's holiness expresses itself not in polite indifference, as is the case with many, but with active hostility, who wish to do away with the Savior and destroy his kingdom. There are always people like that, always have been, always shall be, so long as there is a world. There are certainly a goodly number of them today. Whether sophisticated materialists and naturalists like Ted Turner or the Chinese government, or religionists like Islamic militants in Pakistan or Egypt. But then there are also, and have been, people like the Magi, multitudes of people like the Magi, who by the grace of God receive some word about the Savior about the Messiahs coming into the world. They believe that word and follow it until it has led them to his feet, where with joy they worship him who can save them from their sins. And so Andrews, in his sermon, commending the Magi to King James, now picture the scene, he's sitting there on his throne, and Lancelot Andrews in his Anglican robes is preaching the service there in the cathedral, Westminster or wherever. And he says this boldly, I think. And we, what would we have done These men of the East will rise in judgment against us men of the West. Their faith will rise against ours in this particular point. With them, with the Magi, it was but Wittimus, Wenimus." We saw, we came. With us, it would have been but We We will go at most. Our fashion is to see and see again before we stir a foot, especially if it be to the worship of Christ. Such a journey at such a time? No, but fairly have it put off to the spring of the year, till the days are longer, the way's fairer, the weather's warmer, till better traveling to Christ. Our Christmas would surely have fallen in Easter week at the soonest. And he goes on. But then for the distance the desolateness, the tediousness, and the rest. Any of them would have been enough to mar our wenimus we came. It can't be a great way, we say. It can't be a great way that we have to come. We don't love that. Well fare the shepherds because they came just a little way. Rather like them than the magi. No, not like them either. For with us, the nearer, the farther off. Our proverb is, you know, the nearer the church, the farther from God. The nearer the church, the farther from God. Now, I wonder what King James thought about that when he heard that sermon for the first time on Christmas Day in the year of our Lord, 1622. Did he see himself in those words? Did he wince to compare himself with the Magi and realize that they were not only much more prompt in their seeking after the Lord than he ever was, but altogether more serious, altogether more delighted at the opportunity to know the Lord and to have him as one Savior and Master, so much more than he was, notwithstanding all of his religious background and training, his interest in theological questions. Did he ever see himself in the priests and the theologians as he was listening to Andrew's sermon and realize he was in the wrong group? Whatever James is the first reaction to this text and the example of the Magi I may have been, the question for us today is what is ours? Are we, you and I, prepared to drop Everything at the first sign of the presence of Christ, the first word of God, and go to him in our hearts and with our lives to lay down the gift of ourselves and whatever he asks for from us at his feet and worship him as Lord and the Savior of our lives. Will we, do we, like those wise magi, make our homage to Christ the principal business of our lives, whatever the cost? For you see, the star rises over your life and over my life a hundred times every day. And do we follow it? Or do we say something about it, satisfy ourselves on the point like the theologians and turn our back and go on to whatever it was we were thinking about and doing before that word of God That direction from God came. For this, it seems to me, is the great burden of this history, insofar as it is an illustration of the various human responses to the gospel and to the Messiah. There's only one right and true response, and it's the response the Magi made obedience immediately. Readiness to follow the Lord's directions wherever they lead. They followed the star against the desert. Uh, Across the desert they went home by another route. But in all things they responded with heart and mind and strength to the message they had received from God. And their blessing for that was this. That they saw the infant king and had the immense privilege given to almost no other Gentiles in those years. Of knowing him to be the king of kings and savior of the world. They found him, and they went home rejoicing in the knowledge of him. The difference is not that some show piety and others do not. The theologians made a great show of piety, and everyone would have thought them pious. It's not that some belong to the house of God and others do not, for the theologians not only belong to the house of God, they ruled over the house of God. It's not that some do great works for the house of God, for Herod had done that, magnificently remodeling and enlarging the temple during his reign. The difference is certainly not that some are long connected with the word and the church of God, their families having deep roots in the history of the church, for though the theologians had that, the magi didn't have that at all. They were strangers, people upon whom the Lord, uh, the people of God, the Jews, would look down, not only because they were Gentiles, but before, because of their profane occupations astrologers, enchanters, magicians, things the law of God forbade. Nor is the difference that some seem well disposed to God and others hateful toward him. For the line that separates these men is not drawn between Herod on the one side and the priests and teachers of the law and the Magi on the other. The line is drawn between the Magi on the one side and the priests and the teachers and Herod together on the other. What distinguishes these folks, spiritually speaking, in terms of the gospel and Christ and salvation and the future is that when the word of God came to the Magi, foreign as it was to them, alien as it was to everything they were associated with before, they believed it, and believing, they acted upon it, even though the actions required were difficult, demanding, and expensive. While when the news came to the priests and to Herod, They did not commit their lives to it. They did not allow that word to change their lives. They were not willing to drop everything to respond in real sincerity and genuineness to the news that the king had appeared in the world. And that is the difference, and the only difference still today. It's not a difference of IQ or personality or personal background, or national, or racial, or ethnic identification, or life situation and circumstances. It is this and this only. When I encounter the Word of God, the news about Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Savior of man, do I really believe it? Do I believe it so as to act upon it? So as to act upon it no matter what, come wind, come weather, to act and then keep on acting until the end of my life. For surely if the word about Jesus Christ is really believed. Believed in the heart and in the mind. Then one will act. One must act. For that word is that he is the living God. The king of kings. The judge of all men. The light of the world. The savior of mankind. No man can come to the father or to heaven except by him. Surely if that is believed. Really believed. It must become the animating, the controlling, the determining principle of someone's life. What else could be, conceivably? And here then is the challenge this wonderful history presents to each one of us. Am I such a person as these magi? I know more about Christ than they did. I have the whole New Testament before me. But then the theologians and the priests knew a great deal more about Christ than the magi did. And their knowledge did them no good at all because they did not combine it with true faith. But have I the faith of the Magi, the conviction, the readiness to believe and to act, to rearrange my life, root and branch, for the sake of the Savior and His word and His summons? Do I consider it my greatest privilege as well as the great duty of my life, compared to which all other duties virtually are no duties at all, to lay my gifts and my life And my energies and my talents and my money and my children and my career and my aspirations and my love and my heart at his feet in worship because I know him to be my king and I know him to be my savior. Let me give you this illustration. This same thing, of course, happens countless times all over the world. It happens here in this congregation over and over again, times without number. But it's easier to see and to note and to consider and to mark, I think, when it happens in situations that are much more unexpected, like the situation of the Magi coming from far away, a people who knew nothing about the Bible and about the process of that that history of salvation of which the coming of the Messiah was the last great event. Many of you have read of Henry Martin, one of the greatest heroes of the early um, renewal of missionary effort in the Christian church when it began again in the early years of the 19th century, the early 1800s. Martin was perhaps the brightest light in that galaxy of spiritual young men who sat at the feet of Charles Simeon, at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge while they were students at the university. Indeed, um, Martin, upon his graduation and ordination, actually served as Simeon's assistant for two years. And there in that ministry, and in that church, and in that fellowship, he received not only the full-orbed gospel ministry of that great pulpit, but also a missionary zeal, a determination to take the gospel to the regions of the world, in which it was completely unknown. He eventually went to India and served there actually only some five years, although his name is forever linked to the great uh, Indian subcontinent. Five years only, though his erudition in languages was so great that although he knew nothing of the language when he arrived, within those five years he had not only mastered it, but had produced a translation in Hindi of the New Testament, a very fine translation. He planned to return to England for a recruiting visit in hopes of reunion and perhaps marriage with the woman he loved and had left behind, and to recover his own health, which had been severely damaged by the years he'd spent in India. And so he started out on a cross-country trip home through Persia. But as it happened, he had to stop for a while in Persia um, to engage in apologetics and evangelism amongst the Muslim doctors and to uh, get better at Persian, and to translate the New Testament into Persian as well. And there he paused for some time before making his way onward and homeward, where he fell ill in what is now Turkey, and in a village some 70 miles south of the Black Sea, uh, died. When he was still in India, uh, Henry Martin worked uh, latterly in the town of Kanpur, the very town where Frank and Esther File of our own church labored for so many years. And when he was there, he would often gather around his front door, the front door of his little bungalow, a crowd of beggars and would preach to them about Christ, the Christ, the Messiah who had come and who was coming again. But one day, as it happened, an Indian court official happened to be present. Perhaps he had just been walking by and had stopped to see what was going on. He had no interest in the message. If he stopped, it was to deride and to scorn, not to believe and to obey. But wholly unbeknownst to Henry Martin, the words that the Indian official heard that day about Jesus Christ, the Savior who, of those who trust in him, the one and the only one able to save us from our sins, took root and brought over time uh, this Indian official to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was after Martin left India that uh, this man presented himself for baptism, a daring, a daring thing in itself for a Hindu to do in those days, and then gave up his large income and his position of immense uh, and important prestige and status for a catechist's salary of 60 rupees a month. In due time, he received ordination as an Anglican priest and spent the rest of his life in the gospel ministry in India. He was Henry Martin's only Indian convert. And so far as we know, Martin never knew anything about it. But Bishop Reginald Heber, the Anglican missionary statesman of India in those early days and the author of the hymn, The Son of God Goes Forth to War, tells us in his Indian journal of meeting this man who had taken a new name at his baptism, Abdul Messiah, the servant of the Messiah. Heber, a devout man himself, speaks of how greatly impressed he was by this man's noble Christian character. Just like the Magi, a Gentile far, far away from the places where one would find most of those who knew and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. But he got some word about the Messiah, and he believed it. And he responded not in indifference and not in fear of the consequences of the Lord Christ's reign, but in submission, cheerful and grateful trust and love, and a life of self-sacrificing and self-renouncing service and worship. And he was not only happier for it immediately, much, much happier. See the Magi overjoyed there in verse 10? But happy beyond words now. Where he, along with other Gentiles and the Magi themselves, who once were strangers to the covenants of God, without God and without hope in the world, as Paul describes them in Ephesians chapter 2 have now sat down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to feast there in the kingdom of God. In whose example do you find yourself this morning? The one who receives the word about Jesus Christ and his reign and his kingdom and immediately responds promptly, responds with obedience and worship, service, Love, gratitude, joy. Or the theologians in their self-satisfied indifference, their contentedness to go on as they always had before, with the word of God and of God's salvation sounding remotely in the background of mind and heart, but unattended to, unresponded to, unobeyed. In whose example do you find yourself this morning? My friends, there is joy and salvation in the Magi's way. Follow it to Christ every day and in every different kind of way. Follow that word to Christ and to Christ's feet and find yourself worshiping him once more and overjoyed to do so. Discover as they did over and over again. that no one gives, no one lavishes gifts on those who come to him, as does Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen.